gender couples is how they describe them. That's from a project called CREATE, or Couple Relationships and Transition Experiences. CREATE is an acronym, like all good researchers, uh, they have an acronym oh for their study, which is like so good. I Acronyms I are not my strong suit, and I was like, I've Damn, never had CREATE an acronym. So never. I've, Seth, it's, it's do never you do acronyms? I love them, yes. <laughs> but they're <laughs> so hard. That maps so on. Hard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sessin Nagash um, out of San Diego State University. Today, Sessin uh, and Pop and Culture will bring us a conversation about Harlem, the TV show, uh, which I haven't seen, so I'm really excited about that. Then we're going to jump to our academic deep dive segment and discuss a new academic article, Do Couples Who Play Together Stay Together? A Longitudinal Dyadic Examination of Shared Leisure, Financial Distress, and Relationship Outcomes like all of the things in life. And then in good or bad advice, we will be talking about some famous people quotes circulating the socials right now. Ooh, what could it be? Which famous people, what are their quotes? Are they good or are they bad? If you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at Attached Podcast, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us all at Attached Podcast, or go directly to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, for bonus content and to support this wee little podcast, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash attached, and become a patron. Also, as always, wherever you listen to this little podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, whatever, uh, please kindly rate, review, and subscribe. So looking forward to a top-tier episode for you guys. But before we get to all that, how are things going? What's up? What's new? What's fancy? What's not fancy? What's not new? I don't know. Talk to me about your life, Woods. Well, I think it may have been last episode where I had maybe shared that I was relocating. And so I was giving yes. like a lot of stuff away to the neighborhood. Yes. And I was developing some like real neighborhood fans of anything I was putting on my porch. And so subsequent to that, I mean. Slash watching, stalkers? Yes. They were enthusiastic about, um, I mean, some of it felt a lot like. Um, trash, as they say, one person's trash is another person's treasure, Indeed. and they thought they found very special treasures. Um, and then, How so sweet. subsequently, I spent a lot of time packing, which I also discovered is a really big skill set of mine. So I'm oh. currently in temporary housing, so I'm um, without the ability to keep packing, but. I mean, when I say I can construct a cardboard box, <laughs> use like packing tape and like organize things like thematically, it's sort of like really high end qualitative research. It's just the objects in your house. Sure. And um, uh, I don't know if I shared this on here, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but the movers did come and say, who helped you? <gasps> I said, it was Tis only me. me. <laughs> And are you looking for a colleague, a moving <laughs> colleague per se? Because we I'm looking um, for a new job. 
I saved us like a thousand dollars on the move and like four really? and a half hours. Oh yeah. They were like, you knew that we were going to help you pack some of this, right? And I was like, yeah, but it felt rude for y'all to show up here and just have like Classic. stuff scattered everywhere. Like it just felt like such an inappropriate request. Um, my husband Did you say to that me, to them? Did I you did. say that? What was I their did. response? Well, they thought that was cute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, my husband is definitely trying to save us some time and energy and I was like yes but also do they really need to go through I can organize a lot of this myself so it was a very efficient move and I can't keep anything alive but if you give me uh inanimate objects I can organize and sort and pack them very effectively look at you yeah put that skill on your CV I don't know how to yet but (sighs) I think you're right about that (laughs) they have full uh you know uh, reality shows about that you know they do these organizers oh, oh like mm, yeah but not mover her, her, her name's not mary curie what's it a uh, mary, mary condo oh, yeah. yeah different <laughs> different <laughs> so only slightly well i mean i think one person's um uh life ended in radiation poisoning <laughs> uh despite all of like the nobel prize science right Right, 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 and, right. Uh, the, the other, other one is still living. Ended in like balled up socks and living a good life. Yeah. I think tomato, Either. tomato. Six of <laughs> one, half a dozen of another. I'm somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> oh mercy, Seth. What's up with you? I've got myself signed up for quite a few like school volunteer things, and oh I'm both Look excited. A plus parent. I mean, I think it's my way of like trying to feel better about the fact that, you know, I really don't spend that much time on the Monday through Friday with the work schedule and everything. So I'm like, okay, I got to get some time in here and there. But I've also been a little nervous about it because I'm like, okay, am I going to know how to entertain a group full of kids? Am I going to embarrass him? Like he, he gets pretty embarrassed by us already and he's only six. So I'm like, I can see myself leaning in too hard to the I'm the cool mom thing and I'm playful <laughs> and I can be on your level and that might freak a maybe handful of them out but I, I you know most kids respond well to my playful energy but yeah. I don't know how he's going to respond which is like the one that I'm really right. interested in um sure. he seems excited at the moment for Good. me to come and like I'm doing the zoo field trip with them in a few weeks and I know the zoo really nice. well so I'm going to bring all my knowledge to the table and be like that mom who can talk about the teacher's gonna be oh like, um, ex- excuse me, Miss Nagash, this is not the zookeeper is actually talking right now, ma'am. Oh, I can oh. see it. I can see myself being like taking over, making it about me and all I know. And I'm like, I have to reel it in. This is about the young ones, and <laughs> their experience. I just need to get one under my belt, like one chaperone. Yeah, yeah, sure, 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 like, sure, sure. Know I how think to you do it. should lead though with um ma'am I'm not sure you're clear that the young ones usually appreciate <laughs> this energy. I should list a handful of experiences I had, birthday parties, babysitting, like all the things that have to me given me like strong signs of like I'm really good strong. with kids. Um the fact that your family therapist wasn't on that list, which is No, really, it doesn't because there's like really a fun. therapeutic way to engage kids and then there's like a just a playful energy. Party mom. That, yeah, party mom, I can like, you know, make jokes and ask the kind of questions that get them like I think interested in activities. I don't know. So I have probably just made this all up in my head. There's no person who's given me any feedback of the sort um i am 
thrilled about the follow-up of this. I cannot wait to hear. I might release like a, a follow-up feedback survey um, for six-year-olds. <laughs> like happy faces, you know, like giving like, did you enjoy <laughs> Trey's mom's <laughs> happy sad face? You know, the things you see now at the airport? In the bathrooms? Like, yeah. <laughs> Keep oh it simple. Oh my God. They had one of those when we were flying back uh, from Italy this summer. They had one of those kiosk things where you ride beside the line when you come in for it's not immigration but you know what's it called border patrol customs. border patrol all that <laughs> it was customs yeah thank you oh thank you i know the terms uh they had one like off to the side and it was like obviously like they decided not to do it but it was like <laughs> i was like that the worst place in the world when we're packed in here like sardines how are you enjoying your spirits? I'm sure it was a hundred percent super red frowny face. People just standing there hitting it, hitting it, hitting it, hitting it. Oh, I mean, um, yeah. Those things are pretty cool though. It's like a quick way to give feedback. I accidentally I pushed the wrong end of the feedback <gasps> a couple weeks ago at the airport. And this lady was super nice giving me my food. And I was like, five star, but it was <laughs> and I didn't notice, think about it till later. So she just probably thought. Like, how confusing. Like, she was so nice, but she gave me, like, yeah. so passive aggressive. I don't understand. Yeah, it, it was probably that. Directly in the eye when she pushed the. And I really did. It was more like, you're getting up. Like, I gave her that reassurance. And then I walked away. It must have looked like very, I don't know. Like, this lady's nuts. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, my know. God. Absolutely. Take your time. Make sure to give the correct response. Um, so uh, I had the joy of going to Washington, D.C. with Sarah Woods. No, it wasn't for vacation. It was work. But in my mind, it was vacation. Whatever. Uh, we went to some very lovely dining experiences, just the two of us. I'm not going to say it was romantic, but it wasn't not romantic. Um, but anyway, I was thrilled to get back. As soon as I get back, the baby... <laughs> He's not a baby anymore. He's about to be two. I should stop calling him the baby. Um, started puking his guts out. Stomach bug. And so I picked him up from uh, daycare on Thursday. Didn't really feed him Thursday much. Just a little bit of apple juice and some milk, you know, because I didn't want him puking anymore. Uh, he, we kept him back Friday, too, because we didn't want to get any of the baby sick. And then Saturday morning, he woke up at 4.30. <laughs> What type of child is this? Uh, Sunday morning, he's up till seven. What? The other side of the pendulum. This morning, this is we're recording this on Monday, by the way. He woke up at 4.45. I wasn't uh, flabbergasted. So anyway, I got in the shower and everybody, the whole entire house is asleep except for me and the toddler. And so the house is safe, by the way, but he was just running around the house while I was in the shower Knowing if something bad would happen, there are other people in the house that could hear him. And so he comes, I can hear him like running down the hallway. I was like, okay. Comes running down the hallway to me and he brings, you know, those little tiny cup yogurts. And I was like, oh yeah, you could definitely have that. I'm you're in the shower right now, so I'll get it. I'll open it for you as soon as I get out. He can kind of understand. So he goes, ah, I'm like, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to wait like five minutes. And so he comes, I hear him running back down the hallway to the kitchen and I didn't hear him for like 
four or five minutes. I was like, okay, I guess he kind of gave up on it. Like, I don't know, found some toys, whatever. I hear running down the hallway and he comes in and goes, ah, and he had managed to open the little yogurt cup, half of it. And then he had like opened up the silverware drawer and fished his little hand in there and pulled out a fork. And he has had yogurt all over his cute little face. And he was feeding himself yogurt in like a container that was half full. I was like, oh, he's sweet. I know. I was like, look at you. So I got the rest of the lid off and gave it to him. And he was like, ah. And he was just eating at the yogurt. Aww. I was like, well, he's officially an adult. I have no more pairing <laughs> left to do. He can feed himself. But it was so hilarious this morning at 530. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been more thrilled if it was 730 in the morning and not 530 in the morning. <laughs> First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our family and friends, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sesson, what do you got for us? So I have been watching um, season two of the show Harlem. It's... Um, a comedy television series uh, that is produced by Tracy Oliver, um, and it has some really fun characters in there. It has a bit of the Sex in the City vibe, but really different in terms of the issues that they cover. A lot more, um, I think, uh, rich in terms of looking at and talking about like issues of today and um, mm. looking at some of the complexities of life in ways mm. that I, I don't know the Sex in the City um, sure. used to do. What network or show is it? Yeah, on? so it's available on Prime and Ooh. Amazon. And that's where I watch it. But I don't sure. know if it's available on, to stream on other um, networks. It follows four girlfriends who all met in college, um, NYU, and they remain friends. They're in their 30s. They are living in Harlem. And, you know, they're trying to balance, of course, um, you know, love, um, career life and in the process making you know some funny moves some errors some hard decisions um and the fashion is wonderful and i'm obsessed with that as i usually am with shows um <laughs> as i'm watching season two um you know it progresses into like a bit more of like a serious tone um it's mm. typically a comedy but then you start to see some layers unfold with some of the characters and one of the characters quinn is experiencing symptoms of depression it looks like you know um you see her shift into some um you know her affective state changes she starts to experience more sadness uh tearfulness a sense of like hopelessness staying in bed more like you know you start to see some of the signs and as a clinician like you know you immediately tune into it but right. um it may not seem that evident to people you know during the earlier episodes of that sort of storyline unfolding um but she sort of loses interest also in a lot of things that used to bring her pleasure normal activities and sort of pulling back from some friendships and pulling back from work and um just really sort of starts to shut down and shut people out right and doesn't say what's happening and it really i think brought to light for me um some of what we're talking about i think a bit more in our culture more openly which is a wonderful thing um this idea of how do we show up for our friends um when they seem to be struggling with 
um, their mental health, right, or their wellness. Um, and just, you know, how is it that we're supposed to engage them? Like what is responsible to do? What is thoughtful to do and not to do? Um, because there's no rule book for how to be a friend. And especially when a friend is in a place of hardship, right? We have conversations, I think, about like when somebody's in a tough place. But when we're thinking about someone's mental health, I think it feels a little more complex sometimes to sort of engage and know what to say and do. So I just wanted yeah. to bring it up today a little bit because, um, you know, there is a way that we, um, I think, think about issues of mental health. And when we see someone who we care for start to struggle, I think it's easy for us to sort of, you know, discount what might be a more serious issue you know, and look at it more situationally or look at it as like, you know, they're just going through something and they'll get past it, right? But what's that line, right? What's that point where you start to really um, become a little bit maybe more concerned or ask more questions and really try to engage them more about what's going on for them in terms of their mental health? Um, and there's not a lot of time, of course, to go into a lot of the um, different sort of diagnoses around like just, um, you know, depression, major depression disorder, uh, persistent depression disorder, um, when we talk about situational versus more clinical depression. And so I won't do a lot of that, but I do, um, and I think without having a real understanding, of course, of the character and their history, it seems like in the episodes, it's more like situational, like depression and not this long history of it, um, or even short history with persistent depression disorder. But I do think, um, how we talk to our friends, I think, can make a difference um, when they're struggling. Mm. I also want to recognize that with each person, it might be a little differently how we have to approach it. Mm. Um, you know, depression is treatable, and on some level, it can help um, to various degrees, right? And in terms of symptom management, um, and that can come through lifestyle changes. Um, medication or, you know, uh, therapy, right? Um, Talk and therapy, when, yeah. Yeah. I think, and this might be anecdotal because I don't actually know the research on this, but I think more people are starting to be more open to recommending and talking about therapy as like a go-to. Like that becomes sort of like, Oh, you're struggling. Have you tried therapy? I think that that didn't used to be like a right. thing to say. No, I think you're right. I think the trends would point to less stigma around therapy. I think that's factual. Oh, yeah, I, I sort of sense that too. Um, I think though, to be really responsive to the person in the history of maybe what that person who's associated with the community has experienced when recommending therapy is important though. Like I think, for example, when trying to promote the use of therapy, um, you know, you want to consider, particular for people of color, what that sort of is yeah. pushing, right? Um, you know, do you blindly recommend them to engage in the process, um, a process that's Eurocentric, you know, developed in a system and has been maintained in ways that promote, you know, Eurocentric values and practices? Um, and what you're saying is Eurocentric, but also, you know, values of white supremacy too, right? Yes, like that's yeah. right in particular places, even strong. Right. And are you pushing them in a way that, you know, ultimately that experience could be more harmful to them yes, than helpful, very right? Good point. Um, it can, you know, 
therapy is a space that we all hope would be supportive and healing, but for some, and for many, you know, particularly people of color, that place is not necessarily a safe place to go. They've been offended or harmed by the medical and mental health community for centuries. And while we think we've made a lot of progress, we really have a long way to go in that work. And so um, I think while we've come a long way with being able to talk about therapy and encouraging it, I think we just want to be mindful when there's resistance there where that might be coming from or how we approach it and how we think about how our friend might be able to approach it in a way where they're really connected with someone who can really understand and be responsive to their communities. Can I ask a question? So let's say that you, it could be any friend, but maybe particularly a friend of color and you want to like recommend therapy, but you're mindful that it might not be helpful. What like um, qualities of a therapist would you recommend they look for to maybe hope that it is a positive experience? for them, particularly maybe uh, your friend, if it's a person of color? Yeah, that's a really good question. And something that, you know, I've had to do in my own pursuit of therapy is like, what am I looking for? How do I know if I'm finding a culturally responsive or responsible therapist? And it's sometimes you can't look at, you see it on face value, right? But I think for me, I'm looking for explicit, at the very least explicit, you know, use of language and um, information that's on their profile that says that they operate from a place where they think about, you know, some of these different contextual factors Mm. that exist in people's life. You know, I think without that, and even though they have all these, you know, a lot of training and certification things, I think if they're applying that in a one size fits all kind of way, I'm not interested, right? Because I've seen that happen to people where it harms Mm. them because they don't, use it in a way therapists are not using it in a way that is consistent with what their experiences are um Mm. and it could be more pathologizing you know ultimately and there could be a lot of labeling involved and ultimately just guiding them down the wrong path so i think looking for those explicit demonstrations in the profile and then following up and making sure you don't just read the profile and schedule something but asking to talk to the clinician being really explicit like how do you think about how culture fits into the work therapy world right and if they stumble a lot through some statements right i would be weary of that like somebody who is really thinking about um you know people's salient identities and how they play into their experiences and their symptoms and their problems that is something that they should be pretty versed at at this point and if they're not then they still have maybe work to do and you don't want to be an experiment for them so those are things i look for there's also more spaces now where people can go explicitly to find clinicians of color Mm -hmm. we're considerably still underrepresented when you think about like who are our therapists in the community um you know, we have a long way to go to see that representation and it's improving, but it's definitely not there. And so, you know, people of color have to work a little harder as they do in most things to find what should be available to them more easily. Um, So that to me is something that came to mind um, for sure. And, you know, just not avoiding bringing it up, right? But just really being mindful of how you do and, just being in more dialogue with that person before you, um, yeah. Um, so I yeah, it. I didn't know what you all are thinking about this sort of area um, of work. I think I typically don't recommend therapy, meaning 
uh, unless someone, which I'm sure you all have this too, especially over the last few years, unless someone is explicitly coming to me to ask for recommendations of mental health support available in the community, which are requests that I get very, very regularly and try to really keep an updated, curated list of people that I know are going to do really high quality work. Unless someone's maybe explicitly asking that, I tend to sort of ask more open-ended, especially if I'm getting concerned about somebody or it seems like maybe they're getting concerned increasingly about how they're doing and they're sort of talking about that more um, openly with me. I tend to sort of start open-ended in terms of like, are you thinking that maybe it might be helpful for you to get some extra support right now? And also what would that look like for you? Because I think therapy is not necessarily everybody's go-to and a lot of times people have sources of support that maybe historically have been really valuable for them but when especially we're depressed or we're really anxious or we're super stressed Mm -hmm. we're less likely to tap into what has worked before than when we're doing well and sometimes it sort of just takes refreshing about maybe there's like a religious uh, or faith-based source of support that has been really helpful for them or a support group of a specific kind or um, a group of new parents that they used to sort of connect with more often. It doesn't always need to look like traditional mental health care. And so I usually try to start that conversation if I'm concerned or it sounds like they are more open-ended because I think a lot of times people can sort of come to an idea about what might be useful for them that is something I will never come up with because they know what's worked for them before. So that's one way I try to be careful about not just like outright recommending like, I love therapy, you probably will too. (laughs) It's uh, Yeah, I love everything that you guys are saying. Yeah, so just for our viewers, just to have a sense like, you know, here are just a handful of things to consider when trying to support a friend, um, you know, around the issues of mental health and wellness. you know, one thing to do is sort of educate yourself so you're being more be mindful of how you're engaging that person and not, again, engaging them in a way that causes more harm than mm. good. Um, listen and validate, uh, like Sarah was saying. Don't try to solve the problem right there and then. It um, can be insulting. Yeah. It could be further harming because it tries to minimize just the extent to which the issue mm. might be affecting them um, and the complexities around it. Um, try to offer to spend some time with that person doing activities outdoors, socializing, not to say that that might be a fix, but isolating more can uh, exacerbate certain symptoms. So you just want to try to help them not isolate further. Um, uh, Like just extending a lot of kindness and loving energy. Uh And if you have a lot of stress and anxiety in your own life and they're absorbing that, (laughs) You know, just being mindful of like what the energy is that you're bringing into yeah. this. Oh, you're trying to that's be a hard one. But it's also hard. that one is uh, really important in my life when good friends, family, loved ones, whoever it is, and I'm kind of spiraling uh, into mm-hmm. something and they just give me grace to have those feelings mm-hmm. and, you know, extending that uh, kindness. Oh, God. Like how powerful is just kindness? It's just so lovely. That, I appreciate you saying that one, Sesson. Yeah. And then last, if you feel like it's progressing, getting worse, becoming mm. more serious, yeah. maybe seeing if there's someone else to involve 
um, mm -hmm. at that point, mm -hmm. you know, trying to work more, um, you know, directly to try to help them find a therapist if they may not have the energy for or the hopefulness yeah. to do that yeah. for themselves and asking permission to do that, you know, as a way to support rather than sort of coming to the table with a list of people. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, just some things to be mindful of. But thanks for engaging me about this. In this episode's Academic Deep Dive, we're talking about new research that explores whether shared leisure protects against the negative affects that financial stress can have on couples' relationship quality. In the new Family Process article titled, Do Couples Play Together, Stay Together? A Longitudinal Dyadic Examination of Shared Leisure, Financial Distress, and Relationship Outcome. Dr. Casey Totenhagen at the University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa, and her team focuses on money-related stress. Finances are often one of the biggest stressors for Americans, and stress and worry about money has really profound impact on couples and is regularly a factor contributing to declines in marital satisfaction and often cited as a reason for divorce. Though economic stress can negatively impact couples' relationships, some research also suggests that it can be, quote, catalyst for positive relationship growth and increased commitment for couples who put work into maintaining the relationship and get support from friends and family. The research we're discussing today looked at one type of work couples do to maintain their connection, Shared leisure or leisure, as I prefer to pronounce it. This is a sort of research fancy term for how partners spend time together in non-work activities like eating meals together, visiting friends, shopping, going for walks together, going to the movies. Who goes to the movies nowadays? Uh, but some people do, not me. Going out for a night on the town, whatever suits your fancy. What these researchers were especially curious about is whether enjoying time together like this can mitigate money-related stress couples often experience and protect against drops in relationship satisfaction and commitment. However, they also explored whether this is true for both high-income and low-income couples. How very clever. In other words, whether this protective benefit of sharing leisure time together may work best for couples with higher socioeconomic status, given the vulnerability and persistent distress often tied to living in poverty. Wow, I am thrilled about this. Sarah, gosh, this is just really, really cool way to look at potential way couples can protect themselves against financial stressors that a lot of us feel. Can you tell us more about the study, what they find, all of the things? Yeah, so this is a study that used longitudinal data. So they used a national sample of newlywed different gender couples is how they describe them. That's from a project called CREATE or Couple Relationships and Transition Experiences. CREATE is an acronym, like all good researchers, uh, they have an acronym oh for their study, which is like so good. I Acronyms I are not my strong suit, know. and I was like, I've never had an Create. acronym. So never. I've, Seth, it's, it's do never you do acronyms? I love them, yes. <laughs> but they're <laughs> that, so hard. That maps so on. Hard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> They're so, so hard to find, like to do well, you know? Mm. Oh, yeah. I tried to fantastic. create an acronym for like my research lab this past month. They were all inappropriate. Everything I came up with was so inappropriate. Define inappropriate. Was, well, like, what do you I, mean? I, when I were was they like, sexual in nature? It's, 
I sounded one out and I remember it was like fascism. I was like, what's happening no, here? No, 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 <laughs> that's not, no. That's definitely inappropriate. <laughs> so, and that didn't map on to what I was looking to focus on. So an impressive project. Glad to know your sub side of research that you're keeping hidden from me is not in fact fascism. <laughs> not, Very happy not, to hear that. Oh my not God. specifically that. I ended up with the fish lab, which then I was like, it just sounds like I'm studying fish. It doesn't even or, it's just so dedicated it to our friend and colleague, Jessica Fish. Hey, there you go. So they use data from the CREATE project. Um, and at the beginning of the study, couples in this project had been married about two years. They um, most often were married in uh, year 2014, just so some um, context. These couples are recently married. Uh, at least one of those partners had to be in their first marriage. And that study started with 1,899 couples where both partners responded to these surveys and they retained 85% of them through the four waves of, I know, I guess when you have a good acronym, you keep all your participants. (laughs) They really want to do part of it. There should be a study about that. Let's just say how much acronyms really help. (laughs) They really impact your branding, your research branding. Um, so on average, these husbands were 30 years old, wives 28, um, two thirds of the sample is white, 13% Latino, 10% African-American, median household income 60 to 70,000. Um, and so they looked at waves two through four. So these surveys were collected annually every year after the start of the study. And what they looked at was um, wives and husbands' reports of their experiences of financial distress. So things like, I often worry about my financial situation. It's much worse than it was a year ago. Um, Income, which they reported as between zero to 10,000, all the way up to more than 150,000 annually as household income. And um, reports of shared leisure. So that research fancy term that you talked about, Patricia, they measured it as whether these couples are jointly engaging with their spouse in five different activities, how often they were doing that day to day. So like working on projects around the house, eating main meals together. These were not necessarily profound kinds of leisure activities, right? But Um, I kind of like that as well. Yeah, no, I agree, actually. I think it feels much more real world than like how often they're going on large vacations or um, going to the movies when you have a two year old (laughs) all the time. (laughs) So often. Uh, Then they looked at relationship satisfaction a year later and then commitment a year later than that. Mm. Um, And so what they found was first to start that wives reports of their financial distress mm-hmm. predicted their marital satisfaction a year later. So more distress about money, sure. less satisfaction. And then that in turn predicted their own reports of their commitment two years later. So the less satisfied I am in my relationship, the less committed I feel a year later. Now, looking at that question that you shared earlier, Patricia, that these researchers were focused on, especially about how income maybe impacted these relationships between if we do this fun stuff together, rather we engage in these activities together, can it protect us against some of that financial distress? Mm. What they found was that in lower income households, higher levels of the husbands sharing that they do the shared leisure activities was associated with higher levels of wives marital satisfaction so husbands are saying we do a lot together wives are feeling more satisfied and higher levels of wives financial distress predicted lower levels of wives commitment 
these associations were not found in higher income households. So those are sort of unique to those lower income homes. But what I think is especially important is that in the lowest income homes, some of the lowest income homes, so households with an annual income of about 15,000 or less, wives' reports of higher shared leisure and greater financial distress, uh, those husbands reported less commitment. And wives reporting lower levels of leisure, their husband's commitment increased as wives reported more financial distress. So shared leisure in these lower income households, these lowest income households, was not an adaptive process for these lower income husbands specifically, Mm. meaning it exacerbated the effects of financial distress. The more we do together in these shared activities, the more potentially that connection between uh, financial distress and worse relationship outcomes. Um, It exacerbates the existing stress. Yeah. Um, And so for higher income, so couples that were in some of the highest income households, wives with higher levels, so they're reporting, uh, we engage in a lot of shared activities together, their financial distress, the greater that was, was linked to higher commitment for husbands. So a very different finding for Mm. the highest income couples. So, I mean, I think it's really important to note these are straight couples. These are husbands and wives. These are newlyweds. Mm -hmm. Um, These are some um, really specific ways to look at this specific kind of activities that couples can engage in and whether or not they could be protective about how this kind of stress impacts these couples. Mm. But really, um, I think some nuance here about uh, just sort of what could be a very basic recommendation we could make in couples therapy, for example. And if we're doing that for lower income couples to suggest to them one way to protect or improve your relationship is to have more fun together. We may be ignoring the fact that the vulnerability of living in poverty, living with less financial resources, um, that may already be amplifying increasing that negative link between financial distress which is not necessarily tied to income it is and also people with um more uh, who are not living in poverty can also experience financial distress right, right. but f- combined with that chronic persistent distress of having little income um if we're ignoring the fact that shared leisure could actually be sometimes um really adding to stress trying to find Mm. time to carve out together and then for some of these activities like the movies for example uh if that costs money on top of that right that could be a really sort of questionable recommendation to make off the cuff to couples um yeah i am curious about two things and maybe you can answer this one maybe maybe we'll see uh (laughs) get your thinking caps on (laughs) Um, one, I wonder if the stress of poverty is qualitatively different than the financial stress of sure. the upper income people, of like the keeping up with the Joneses type of financial stress, right? Sure. I would imagine it is. And yes. if therefore that is why there's difference. My other thought, the other curiosity I have is I wonder if a deep investigation on the type of leisure. Sure. Would potentially be a mechanism explaining these different outcomes sure so there are my two thoughts see if you can answer i don't know well so you're right they were limited to asking about five specific activities which is 
an established measure, an established way to do that. But you're right that looking at sort of within couples, what kinds of ways do they maybe enjoy each other's company? And also how challenging is it to carve out time for doing projects around the house versus uh, going out for some sort of recreational activity in town? Like those might look very different cost-wise, time Mm -hmm. cost financially. Um, But I do think your first question about financial distress uh, is sort of interesting because this is a measure that's capturing how frequently these people are worrying about their financial situation. And if they feel like, for example, that their financial situation is worse today than it was a year ago, now Mm -hmm. we could still place them in a higher income bracket. Right. But this sort of financial distress, I guess I don't know from the literature on how finances impact couples if that distress can sometimes... um, precede actual declines in income like does the worrying sort of start before we actually see sort of impacts of like medical bills or um the cost of uh loss of a family member or Mm -hmm. etc i'm not sure about that that's a interesting question yeah and i'm wondering if like for the lower income financial stress might also be paired with like uh, food insecurities. And so are we sure, seeing sure. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. is it totally like, uh, yeah, stress, looking yeah. at um, the outcomes or maybe uh, a spurious, uh, what would be the term? It's not spurious relationship. Anyway. Like a chance. Yeah. Or like what that financial strain is actually capturing is like a food sure. insecurity or a housing insecurity yeah, 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 yeah. Um, type of, um, rather mm-hmm. than a change in economic bracket, which sure. is still stressful and meaningful. I'm not trying to diminish it, but is mm-hmm. it qualitatively different? Have the qualitatively different impact on your relationship mm-hmm. because of sure. what it is underlyingly capturing? You know what I mean? Capturing underneath it. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot more ways to sort of look at the nuance of how socioeconomic status and changes in that and also stress felt due to that impact couples. This is one way. And also, I think the authors, one of the things they pointed to is um, as couples therapists, we can't necessarily impact the financial standing, the income level of couples we're working with. But is this sort of something we could recommend to couples to spend more time together enjoying each other to improve relationship satisfaction, even in the face of financial distress? Mm -hmm. And some of their findings suggest there's probably a little more nuance to that. It isn't just sort of about like making sure you eat dinner together. And I think in general, a big picture takeaway is that our financial standing and our feeling secure in our ability to financially provide for ourselves and our families and how we enjoy each other in our relationships are not two separate issues. They are tied Mm. together. And for people who are living in chronic stress of poverty, they are potentially tied together in different or sort of unique ways that we really need to pay attention to. Mm. But it doesn't mean that they're only tied together for people in lower income Um, they're also tied together for people in higher income brackets too. Like these things cannot necessarily be teased out and separated as two separate issues. And I think a lot of times we do talk talk about relationship satisfaction here. And then, like I just said, there's people who research and study and intervene on financial stress. That's a whole other group of people. Right. Those are not necessarily one and the same in actuality. I think we probably, those two things, those two pieces of our lives connect and weave together just like couples have been reporting that they do for decades yeah and i'm sure millennia um wow Uh, this uh has uh my thoughts going so rapidly i'm going to cite the (laughs) hell out of this uh in any of my upcoming research the highest compliment i mean i cannot wait i'm gonna call this lady up and we're gonna have a deep conversation i can't wait i'm just kidding (laughs) i won't do that i'm not gonna (laughs) 
Oh, warning, fantastic. Warning. <laughs> warning. <laughs> warning. <laughs> my Patricia my just got super committed to you. <laughs> Little did she know when she wrote this. She'd have a long, long time. <laughs> she was going to have PR knocking on her door. You know what's funny too is that I saw this paper, like an alert for this paper, and I was like, oh, not only is it a cool title, but like it's a really cool way to look at sort of some of these pathways over time. It's longitudinal data, it's couple level data, it's very cool. It's all of the things I love. Uh One of the first things that Sesson had shared with me when I first met her was like when she writes a paper, like her best papers at the time, she would consider to be family process worthy. Like, is this paper family process? Family process good. Family process good. Is it family process good? And it's still a measure. Like, I feel like I try to even teach like students uh, and trainees, like think about where this paper should have a good home. And also is it family process? Is it family process good? <laughs> I still say that to myself. And I got one article accepted there last year. And I spelled. Good You're like, look at me. Yeah, right. You're I'm like, family process gonna good. Ride. I'm going to ride that for the next five years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, it is I, such yeah. a niche phrase that when I say it out loud to people, they're like, what? And I'm like, I listen, let me just get my family studies and MFT people yeah, right. uh, on a call. They'll understand. <laughs> Fantastic. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear about relationship advice from our parents, friends, family. We see advice about how to be in these relationships in movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social medias, blogs, and those numerous top 10 lists. But this is gonna become as a shock to you guys. Hold on to your seats. Actually, a lot of it just isn't good for our relationships. What? I know. It's crazy town. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have heard or seen any advice, send it to us. Uh, Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the social medias all at attachedpodcast or go straight to our website, attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, we always have a bonus good or bad advice for our Patreon subscribers. So if you want that sweet, sweet bonus content and to support this lovely little podcast, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash attached. So as promised today, um, we're going to have some uh, opinions from some, quote, famous people. And I just can't wait to hear about what you guys think. They are famous. I don't know why I said quote famous people. I mean, these are legit famous people. You'll recognize them. Pretty sure parents are supposed to put their children before themselves. Oh, really? No, if airplane safety videos have taught me anything, David, it's that a mother puts her own mask on first. All right, from our lovely Moira Rose, good or bad advice? Sarah? Uh, I do love that show so much. Thank you so much for referencing my love of Schitt's Creek. I do think both of those things are like classic pieces of parenting advice that we hear all the time. Parents should put their kids before them. Mm -hmm. And then also, I feel like increasingly over the last 10 years, I've heard especially women say that you have to put your own hair mask on first, which is always, I don't particularly love that piece of advice. Just me personally. I know it's not, I think what the advice me, I know. I think what the advice means is good advice, meaning it is impossible to be a good parent if you're not taking care of yourself. Sure. Uh, and there's buckets and buckets of research to suggest that parents, especially moms who are 
um, not well themselves who are um, stressed to the point of experiencing depression, anxiety, etc. The well-being of their children suffers. So not only their yeah. own, but also their children. So very, very good advice. I just always think it's the most dire metaphor to me. Like, <laughs> when the airplane's going down, you better put your mask on for... Like, at that point, I was like, the airplane's going down anyways. I, don't, I guess I don't really know. I guess it's not necessarily going down when the air mask drops. Like, it might just be a loss and a drop in oxygen. It's just such an extreme, like, <laughs> example of, like, before we... Can't we buckle our seatbelts? Before we buckle our child's seatbelt or something? Like, I don't... So it's not my favorite like piece of advice or metaphor just because it feels so dire like we don't need to wait until somebody needs oh, an oxygen mask Sarah. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. sometimes oh. you incessant talk and i'm like holy shit i'm so glad you guys are so smart i mean jesus that was really good <laughs> mic drops we don't have to wait until we're in dire circumstance to take care of ourselves mercy me anyway sesson care to follow up i mean it's hard to that and I join in with what Sarah is saying and I also think about just sort of the guilt that comes with doing it like that mm. you know to, I think in our society there's so many messages about like how mothers should care for and attach to their children and I think you have to think about some of that messaging and how it's playing into that resistance to take care of oneself and so I think it's not as simple as saying it as much as it is like really constructing like Mm -hmm. how it is they come to understand that their needs are not as important as their child's and Mm -hmm. it's rooted in a lot of you know just messaging I think in our society um so yeah I just think like that requires some processing in order for it to be something I think mothers can really do without adding right more stress and guilt in terms of like them taking care of their needs oh my gosh yes that's a really good yes I love it all right moving to the next one I'm sure you guys are gonna slay this one as well um maybe you've learned from children all these years Wait, you shoot the biggest questions. (laughs) (laughs) The most important. I know, it's like, what's the meaning of life? I don't know. That's right. That that it's all right to be yourself. And that there are those in this life who will accept you exactly as you are. All right, so Mr. Rogers being interviewed by Oprah. This is in 1985, by the way, a throwback, um, as the kids call it. I'm sure kids aren't even using that phrase these days. Um, <laughs> um, as I said as a kid. <laughs> anyway, uh, what do we think? Good or bad advice that what he's learned uh, from children over these years? Sarah uh, Sesson. I really like Mr. Rogers, but I question that sometimes, that notion that he talked about, about... Um, accepting people exactly as who they are and that be like in the fact that you know we don't live our lives in isolation right what we do how we show up in our lives affect other people and who you are may not necessarily be how you show up but i think like there's something about Mm, really accepting the idea that we all are engaging in a journey in life and that who we are might evolve it's not static like who we are i mean there's research and you know work to talk about self right like core and self and and maybe that's what he's referring to but i do think that sort of blind statement 
is problematic because it doesn't always suggest like, I think that we can all continue to evolve and that be a good thing and that be yeah. an okay thing and that, you know, but I know that there's a lot of doubt, criticism, harm that can come with also not accepting ourselves. So I think it's not one or the other. I think there's, yeah, so I'll stop there. But I, that's sort of my I see what you're saying. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's a perspective I hadn't thought of originally, but I appreciate it. Woods, thoughts? Well, I sort of wonder if maybe what you're thinking or referencing, Sesson, is sort of this dialectic of unconditional positive regard and sort of how valuable and uh, core of a need it is to have people who accept you and make you feel like you matter while also holding you to account and believing in your ability to change and Mm. asking for you to show up sometimes in relationships maybe better than you have Um, and that we can probably in our best relationships offer both we can love and accept and make somebody feel like they matter and also still know that people change and um, invite people to sort of change and reconsider when it might be valuable for them or for their relationships yeah I like the way you said that and I think when you accept yourself, you can also be open to adapting, like better. Yes, I think, yeah. you know, right. I think, both, both right. And so there's not that defensiveness or resistance to letting other people in and to have influence and to help, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you guys are saying both can be true and should be, right? Like that balance is always, is ultimately what life is. People oftentimes talk about do this and not that, or in parenting, do this, or in couples, do this and not that. Mm-hmm. Um, but really the balance is oftentimes the capacity to be flexible too, mm-hmm. right? And not flexible to a fault, of course, the balance is so important. And this also reminds me of um, this novel I've been reading called The Hating Game. Hulu made it into a movie recently too. But there are these two co-workers. One is like kind of she would say flighty, but also really kind to people. And the other one is like really rigid and stern and like they really don't like each other. But then over time, they both adapt and change and they fall in love. It's a really great story. Yeah, I, I highly recommend. Say, where's the ending? It's definitely a rom-com. There's no, the title didn't sound like it. I'm not confused. <laughs> I know where you're at. <laughs> you know my genre. That's right. All right. Next that. up is a little something from Adele. Mm. Yeah, I love her. Um, the audio is not um, the best because she it's a live at a concert. Um, so bear with it. I'm going to read the captions. Okay, from Adele uh, at a concert and you can't really um, hear it very well, except that's like definitely on your phone. So I'm going to read the captions. If a relationship is falling apart, whether you're married or not, it's really difficult and it's really traumatic. Um, and it's just keep your friends close because they're better than any man. Uh, they're better than any woman. Your friends are for life. Adele, she did say it teary-eyed as well, and we know she's just gone through a divorce. So it's really fascinating, and I understand from her perspective where she's coming from. She's obviously in a very traumatic place and losing a partner. Um, uh, But I'm curious from your perspectives um, what your thoughts are on this to me, a quite a bold statement. Is the bold piece you think that losing a relationship can be traumatic or 
the work on maintaining friendships because they might be all that sort of carries you through. That friendships are the only thing that lasts a lifetime. I see. Yeah. yeah. Well, Woods, what are your thoughts? That's a bold take. Um, I think we've talked before about um, advice that uh, friendships can come and go and sometimes they're a fit for sometimes in our lives and other times they're not. We might sort of grow out of them or grow apart and that's okay too. And um, my... <laughs> The, the way I was raised was to believe that like siblings were the most important relationship mm. because those are the relationships that you have the longest in your life. Um, so it is sort of interesting. I definitely think for a lot of people, they might say that a spouse is especially important and their goal is to maintain an intimate partnership for yeah. a long time. It sounds like her personal experience is that that's not possible, she's believing, yeah. which would make sense then that her takeaway is friendships are exceedingly important. Yeah. And also that's not everybody's yeah. okay. state. That's okay. That's okay. Sesson, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm, I agree. I mean, it is bold, but I think sometimes when we've been really hurt, we tend to mm-hmm. experience both in our perspective and our behavior, like some rigidity and some like, you know, one end or the other. And so sure. maybe that comes from that place I have no idea that may not assume anything Mm. um but (laughs) I also think there's something about friendships I said this before in one of our prior podcasts that there's a different way you show up in friendships and one that sometimes allows for you to just not work as hard (laughs) to Mm. be yourself and like to be more flawed and for things to be a little bit easier in some ways I say like romantic relationships are hard work they take a lot Mm. of intentionality a lot of you know and she's not saying that you know in that way but i wonder if there's something like to that like relationships friendships Mm -hmm. are really important because you know you can just be more Mm. yourself maybe or you don't have to work so hard right like there's something Mm. about it Mm. that should be more attractive to us than romantic relationships which can be (laughs) the way you're selling it (laughs) <laughs> I am more and more into this advice here. <laughs> I mean, I'm, but oftentimes it, you don't have hot sex with your friends. Yeah. I mean, there's ways to take care of that, you know, meet your needs there. But like, I think ultimately we work hard at our romantic relationships because we want to experience that unique kind of love. That's yeah. that bond. It's something we work at, which is great. And shows that, you know, human capacity to like really manage those difficult moments for the sake of building these close powerful relationships and attachments and bonds but I do think there's something to be said about not having to work so hard yeah that's (laughs) fair there's leaning into that like you don't have to be in a relationship romantic relationship to be fulfilled um it can add to your life it can support but like I think relationship friendships can really bring some Mm. That like uh, not the exact same kind of support, but el- oh, yeah. aspects of it, right? So I completely agree with all of you, both of you. I just add a little humor here or there to the situation. Um, I think uh, the relationships to hold on to, whether they're friendships, marital, family, whatever that looks like, maybe should be the relationships that are of the highest quality, are just stable, supportive, like they're not creating 
a ton of stressors in your life. So uh, I'm not saying that as eloquently as I want to, but maybe that's why Adele is saying that because the friendships for her are the ones that are consistently people who show up for her Mm -hmm. in her life. And for other people that might be siblings and for other people that might be their partner. But that Mm -hmm. being said, I also think that having a community of support, and we've talked about this on the podcast across multiple types of relationships is really important as well. Thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all of those social medias about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. Cannot wait to talk.